So this morning it's Acts 18 and it's the first 22 verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancreae, totally had to like Google word pronounce that, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see everyone. Good to, uh, good to be back after a, a little break away. Um, we are um, in this series in Acts uh, again, and uh, here we are really seeing Paul finish his second missionary journey um, that he takes, uh, going out and planting churches and um, seeing the gospel take root in new, new spaces and, and uh, new cities. And uh, we're going to uh, look a little bit closer at what's happening here, <clears throat> and uh, hopefully my, my voice will um, hold up. I'm not going to spit out any candy. I've learned uh, over the podcast that Andrew uh, learned from his mistakes uh, within that, but it's this time of year, isn't it? We're all fighting off different, uh, different bugs and things like that. So um, today is a little bit of a, a special day as well. Um, today is our fourth birthday, or I don't know, is it a birthday or an anniversary or something? Yeah, yeah. So we launched Village publicly four years ago on this Sunday. So Happy birthday, happy anniversary. I don't know. What are we doing with that? I don't know. So, yeah. And it's also been two years uh, this Sunday since we uh, opened this building. So, um, pretty amazing um, to see what God has done in that time. It was really about two years or so before even that. So, uh, there's been some of us meeting, well, the six of us anyway, that kind of started Village. Uh, that was probably a little over six years ago. And so, there's two years of um, just kind of trying to figure stuff out together uh, before we uh, opened the doors publicly and, and uh, felt comfortable to let others join us. So um, 
So let's dive in and see um, new churches being started again and uh, see how our story can kind of join in with this story. Um, we see uh, Paul um, leaving um, Athens that we looked at last time. And by the time he arrives here in, in Corinth, um, Paul's been through a litany of different things, right? So this is his second journey. It's really the last leg of his second journey. Um, and he's been through a litany of suffering, of trials, of challenges, of afflictions. He's been beaten, left for dead. Uh, he's been arrested, um, beaten multiple times, like all sorts of different things um, uh, with his faith. And we're going to see uh, a hint that, that maybe Paul, some of that is starting to take its toll on Paul. And the Lord is going to have to come along and reassure uh, and, and rejuvenate Paul. And so maybe you're here this morning feeling tired in your faith. Um, uh, our, our faith journey is not one that is, at least mine and I don't, most people that I know, um, that have been walking with Jesus for a while, isn't just this like upward bar graph that just constantly just goes up and there's never any dips. There's never any doubts that, that, that creep in. There's never any um, just tiredness or exhaustion that can kind of uh, come in. And so it's important that we rest. It's important that we have rhythms of Sabbath in our life um, and we work from the Lord's strength and not our own. And we're going to see a little bit of, uh, of that, uh, of ways that we can be encouraged together, I think, in that this morning. Maybe we can find some hope in this passage about Paul's work, his weaknesses, his rejuvenation that he receives from the sovereign Lord. Um, but let's just start with this context. Um, he's in a new context now. We're in the city of Corinth. Um, this is kind of Paul's strategy, isn't it? He moves from one major city center to the next, knowing that if he plants churches in these influential uh, cities, the, the work will move out from there into the kind of hinterlands and things like that. So he's moved 46 miles west from Athens uh, to this Greek city of Corinth. Uh, this is a, a big city, a major city. Um, population uh, could have been up to about 750,000, which was, um, it's a big city now, um, but is, was, was obviously a massive city during that time. Uh, Corinth is this commercial kind of hub. Um, it's a, it's a, an important city of commerce. It was rebuilt. It was destroyed by the Romans and rebuilt by Julius Caesar. So by the time Paul arrives here, there's no buildings that would be older than 100 years old. So it's a new city. It's a big city. It's a thriving kind of city that's there. And it's an important city where it's situated. So it's situated on this kind of uh, isthmus. I haven't used that word in I don't know how long, but if you remember from geography class, everybody know what an isthmus is? People are going, not a clue. It's basically a land bridge, okay? So it's this, it's this uh, land bridge that was about three and a half miles wide, and it would have connected the peninsula um, to mainland Greece. So it was this north-south land route that was very important, but it also then um, became an east and west sea route. So this would have connected, this isthmus, this little land bridge would have connected the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. Um, and so it's a lot of commerce. It's, a, it's an important kind of trade route. It had two ports um, connecting both cities. And so um, they even had, in the 19th century, they dug a channel, uh, the Corinthian Channel. Um, you can still go and see that today. Um, but back then, they actually had like a rail system, and they would pull boats up out of the water onto this like rail system and drag it the three and a half miles across this like rail into the other port. Um, and so there's this, there's a, it's a massive commercial kind of area with lots of things going on. Um, and probably like a lot of port cities, um, it was, Corinth was really known for its kind of immorality. So... Um, you know, this is like the Las Vegas maybe of its day. It's like Sin City a little bit. Um, and especially known for its kind of sexual immorality. So there was even a phrase during this time um, that got coined that that, like if you were really an immoral kind of person or living a bit of wildlife sexually, um, they would say that person lives like a Corinthian. Um, because that's the reputation that Corinth had. And if you, if, we, if you go and read the letters that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, you see he has to correct all kinds of kind of sexual immorality. He has to, all kinds of different ways because of the culture that they lived in um, that he has to bring the gospel to bear there. And so th these are people that are like living like Corinthians. The main um, temple and God that they worshiped or goddess that they worshiped uh, was Aphrodite. So this is the goddess of love. Um, part of temple worship would have been, there was thousands of uh, slave priestesses 
um, that, that uh, operated as temple prostitutes. And so they would go out into the city looking for worshipers. Um, and part of temple worship at this temple was sleeping with prostitutes and stuff. So a very kind of promiscuous city, um, but a major strategic city for gospel advancement. Um, because its residents were influential, they were mobile, they were a, a, a diverse kind of melting pot of a city. And so, and because of the major trade routes uh, and the way that people came in and out of the city, um, Paul knows this is an important city to try to plant the gospel into, to see a church take root and thrive, because from there, um, it, it will see the gospel move out. Um, but Paul writes then in these two letters to this church that, that we will see planted here. Um, and in the letters that he writes, there's, he, he notes um, the feeling that he has during his time that is there. This is what he writes in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 2, his first letter. He says, when I came to you, so this is what we're going to see now, the time that he came to Corinth. Um, when I came, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Weakness, fear, and much trembling. Um, This is what marked Paul's time during uh, his time here in Corinth. And we're gonna see the Lord kind of come and intervene with him. And so the question that I have is, well, what would make... Um, Paul feels so weak and intimidated in a city like this. What is different that this really marks out Paul um, and his confession of feeling like literally shaking and trembling with fear? And so there's probably a few things that we know of the city. One is the immorality of Corinth, right? Just this kind of rampant culture of sin. And so coming into a city where everything's kind of in your face in that, in that sense is a daunting kind of task. How's this going to be received? How, how will the gospel confront the obvious sin um, that is here? Um, it, it probably had to do with the idolatry of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 8, he writes to, he's writing to, this, to, to these people after he's left, and he says, you know, there are many gods and lords in, in Corinth. There's many of them. Um, and, and we saw that last week in, in Athens as well. Um, just this plethora of different false gods and the, the uh, uphill ba- battle that he was going to have to take on there. No doubt there was the arrogance of Corinth as well, right? This is, uh, this is a proud city. They're proud of their intellect. Uh, Corinth was known for these professional um, orators, and you could come and pay them um, almost like a professional counselor. They would give you wisdom or advice or like a consultant, um, and they would give these lofty speeches, right? And so Paul's like, I, I, I didn't come with lofty speech. I didn't come with, with this lofty kind of wisdom. And you could almost hear in this, I don't know that I, is there an intimidation of can I, can I match up with what these people are used to in teaching? They were proud of their wealth, their political power, their culture. And I just have to wonder, could there have been a cumulative effect on Paul as well? All his traveling and all of his trials, are these starting to take an emotional toll on, on Paul? And so for whatever the reasons, Paul is under no illusion here of being some kind of a superhero. Um, He admits his weakness. He admits his fearfulness. Um, And that's so important, right? That's such an important lesson for us to learn here. Um, Because Paul will actually say it's later on, it's it's in admitting his weakness that he's actually able to find the strength of the Lord. It's in admitting our weaknesses that we're actually then able to be dependent on the Lord and on each other. And so part of our our values here, we kind of list 10 of them. One of them is that we want a culture of honesty and authenticity, right? That we're not coming in here and pretending like everything's great and everything's fine. And that's just the, the, the answer that we always give. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine, right? I'm fine. Because that's the answer I'm supposed to give in church. I'm great. I'm grand. I'm fine. Everything will be fine. Um, And we don't want to have to play that game here. We want a a culture within village of spiritual honesty and authenticity, that there are times where we're not fine. And Paul's like, man, I feel weak and afraid right now. And then uh, the other part of that is we want a culture of grace. Um, and, And those things go hand in hand because when we have a culture of grace and not a culture of judgment, where it creates a place where we feel like we can be honest with each other. We can be honest, right, man, right now, I'm not knocking it out of the park. 
in my spiritual walk. Sorry, that was a baseball term. Anybody know what that means? I'm not scoring drop goals at the last minute to win matches. Contextualized. Boom. I've seen your gods here. And, uh, <laughs> right, that's an amazing game. Um, right? So this is, this is what we, we have a place where we're able to be honest. And, and this is Paul. Paul's like, listen, um, right now it's difficult and hard. Uh, I feel weak and afraid. But Paul would go on to tell them the solution to pride and fear, even the sexual perversion of their city, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's the same solution for us today. The fully sufficient, self-humiliating, self-denying cross of Jesus is the solution to our fear. It's the solution to our um, weariness. And we don't, so we don't proclaim that with any kind of arrogance, but we proclaim the cross of Jesus to each other, to our own selves. As we saw in our call to worship this morning, we do that in deep, desperate reliance on the Holy Spirit's power. That's why we'll gather tonight to pray. Um, and ask the Lord uh, to do things that we can't do. The rest of that passage goes on. He says, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest in wisdom of men, in my eloquence, in my, in my wisdom, but what? Your faith would rest in what? The mighty power of God. In the power of God. So this is the context that we're going to see um, this morning. And so let's just look at his time here. Um, Tony Marita kind of breaks it into these four stages, and I think they're helpful for us to kind of walk through. So stage one that we see is, is tent making. So Paul arrives to the city, and um, there are, are times where Paul is supported in ministry, as we'll see, and there are times where he works um, to support himself. He doesn't want to be a burden on on the church, especially in those early days. And so he um, is working. And so he's traveling, he's doing these different things. Let me just say this too, in this traveling um, kind of part, Paul between the years 49 and 52 traveled about 2,000 miles on foot. <laughs> Here's a guy almost, almost 50, and he's approaching his 50s, and he's traveled 2,000 miles on foot. That'd be a roughly walking from Barcelona to Moscow. That's a, that's a lot of walking to tell people about Jesus. And he traveled about 1,000 miles um, by sea, by boat. Um, and so Paul's in that time, as he's traveling, there are times where he takes up his trade um, and he works part-time. So he's working part-time. So when he arrives in Corinth, this is what he does. Um, he's, he goes to um, the place where, where he would be able to apply his trade, and there he meets these friends and co-workers, people who will become his deep friends and co-workers, and he works with Aquila and Priscilla as a tent maker. Um, so Paul's no rugged individualist. Paul's not out doing ministry as a lone ranger. Um, he travels with others as much as possible. Um, he, he, he wants to have a team um, around him. When you read his letters to his churches, they're filled with longings for people, He's like, I miss this person. Give this person my greetings. I long to be with you guys. I really hope that I can see you again. There are times where he knows that he won't, and uh, there are these goodbyes that are tear-stained. And so Paul knew the importance of community and being on mission with other people. And, and here the Lord gives him this great gift in this, in this couple, this married couple, um, um, Aquila and Priscilla. And they had things in common. They were both Jews as well. Um, they, were, they were tent makers. They probably employed Paul. Um, it seems like they had a fairly successful big business and, and probably employed him. Um, um, they more than likely were Christians before being expelled from Rome. So they're Italians. They get thrown out of Rome and, uh, over some kind of disturbance over Christ. <laughs> so Probably the same kind of disturbance that happens when Paul shows up in synagogues that we'll even see here. And, and uh, the ruler there is just like, I don't want to deal with this, as we'll even see here. He's like, this, uh, this, is, this isn't any of my business. What he decides to do is just chuck all the Jews out. He's like, ah, get out of here. And so they have to leave. And they end up in, um, they end up in, uh, in Corinth with Paul. And over and over again, Paul commends this couple 
Um, and so let's just look at a few of the things that I think that we can learn from Priscilla and Aquila that, uh, that we can um, kind of know from them, uh, from this passage and others. The first thing that we start to see with these guys is it seems like they had a pretty dynamic marriage. They're always mentioned together. Um, so you never hear of Priscilla being mentioned without Aquila and vice versa. They're always mentioned together. They really work um, as a team. Um, so next Sunday, we'll see them even work together uh, in ministry. Uh, there's a, a disciple called Apollos, and he's got most of his theology kind of worked out. He seems to be a pretty powerful preacher and gifted in that, but he needs some gaps kind of filled in. And it's these guys, Priscilla and Aquila, that kind of take him aside and fill in some of his theological gaps and make his ministry more, his word ministry even more accurate. Paul couldn't seem to think of one without the other. And so their marriage must have been really dynamic in that. They seem to be running a business together, and then they're also doing ministry together. Um, this beautiful kind of marriage that this couple has. Um, using their marriage and using their, their business, their, their lives um, for mission together. Secondly, um, Priscilla especially seems to have had a remarkable influence on the early church. Um, of the six times that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, four of those times she's mentioned first, um, which is kind of an important thing in the way um, they wrote back then. It's probably an indication that her ministry somehow stood out to them, to the early church. Um, Priscilla, like Lydia that we saw um, in, in Philippi, was an important female figure in the early church. She was a woman of influence, but she also was able to um, teach, and she helps uh, uh, Apollos um, as one of the primary preachers of their time. Godly women are playing a significant role in the, in the early church. And as the church starts to grow and expand, this isn't a male-dominated kind of movement. Over and over again, we see really important women um, with, with really important roles in the early church. Some, sometimes it's their homes that their um, churches are meeting in. Sometimes these are women of means and are funding things. Um, Priscilla uh, certainly seems to know her Bible and, and the, the scriptures as a Jew as a converted Jew, and no doubt was um, playing a role there. Um, and this is important for us, right? This is important for, for us. We want um, our, our, both our men and our women at Village to be um, fierce um, in mission and fierce in, in their ministry with the Lord. Um, I can't remember who we were. One of, the, one of the other elders was talking about, oh, I met with someone that's been around for a while, and they didn't know that we were complementarians. Um, so if you don't know, one, if you don't know what that means, I'll explain here in a second. Two, if you don't know that we are, we are. Um, so, um, but basically, what, is that, what does that mean? Um, for us, it, 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 we believe that God makes men and women equal, right? We're equal in value. We're equal in worth. But that he makes us different, right? And that's, that used to not be a very controversial thing to say. That's really controversial now to say that men and women are actually have some inherent differences, um, but that God makes us different, and he makes us different in ways that complement each other. Um, and so we want men and women, and we want our marriages, and we want um, what that looks like in the home and in the church to reflect the way that God has actually designed us as men and women, um, to be complementary in ministry. And certainly this seems uh, really evident between Priscilla and Aquila. Um, we have women that uh, I was really... On the stand day, um, I was around serving coffee and just doing whatever kind of needed to be done. But it was also great just to be able to kind of listen in and hear some of our, our women teach um, and teach, with, teach the Bible with great accuracy and teach it with great um, fervency. Um, and we want to see more of that. Uh, we see that in our missional communities, right? Um, we have couples that lead those together. You don't have to, you don't have to be married to lead an MC. Um, most of them, maybe all of them are for now, just the way that, that that's worked out. But men and women together, husbands and wives together, leading and teaching the Bible um, in, in complementary ways. Um, and so we want, we want to be robust complementarians um, within that. We can talk more about that. You can come to our intro and belong class, and we'll flesh that out even more. Uh, 
Um, third, they seem to have this kind of, uh, they seem to be flexible and mobile. Um, they start off in Rome, they end up in Corinth. Um, we'll see that they travel with Paul to Ephesus. Along the way, they go back to Rome and then end up back in Ephesus again. Um, they're these sojourners open to the will of God for the sake of the kingdom. Um, they didn't limit God's work in their life by geography, right? And, and so, so many times we're like that. Lord, do whatever you want with my life as long as it fits in this box, as long as I don't have to leave Belfast or as long as I have to leave Belfast or whatever it ends up being, right? We want, we want to give God free range within our parameters. Um, and often that's not the, time, the way that God works. Are we open to the Lord doing whatever he wants, even if that were to, even if that were to move us uh, to a different country, a different city? Are we willing for the sake of the kingdom to be used by God as he sees fit? So they didn't limit God's work in their life by geography. They were committed to Jesus. They were committed to his work. And they were determined, uh, they allowed Jesus and his work, his mission to determine where and how they would spend their lives as business people. So their business, they had a type of business that was able to be used um, wherever they were. So wherever they were able to go, they were able to be on mission um, with their business. And maybe that's you. Maybe you, you're a business person. Maybe you have a, 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 the kind of life that allows you to be flexible and mobile. We don't all, and that's not God's calling for all of us by, by any means. But are we open to what God might be doing in our lives? They also live this missional lifestyle that was really fueled by their passion for Jesus. Um, Paul will refer to them as co-workers in Christ Jesus. He had this high regard for them. He worked with them. He traveled with them. He lived with them. Um, and they did what they did out of this passion for Jesus, out of their love for Jesus, which is why he calls them co-workers in Christ. Not just like my co-workers. These are co-workers that are in Christ Jesus. They are doing this for him. Um, they already seem to be doing some of these things by the time that Paul links in with them. And they live this missional lifestyle. What do you do? What is it that you do? Right? That's one of the first questions we always ask someone. Oh, you meet a stranger. You sit next to someone on the plane. Oh, oh, what do you do? What's your vocation? How do you spend most of your life in that? What is your tent making? And some of you are in medicine. Some of you are in education. Some of you work in nonprofit, um, construction, artists, homemakers, entrepreneurs, Whatever it is, but are you, whatever that is, a worker in Christ Jesus? Are we using whatever God has given us, whatever talents God has given us, whatever opportunities God has given us? Are we asking that kind of question, Lord, why have you given me this vocation at this time and place in my life? How does this fit in with your calling in my life? Because as Christians, we all have callings in our life. It's not just professionals that are called. It's not just pastors and clergy that are called. We're all called. Some of us are called to full-time ministry and some of us not, but we're all called to ministry in some kind of way. For them, making tents, hosting people in their home, they just viewed that as all part of their work as mission. And that really flowed into then the next part. They really saw mission through hospitality. We're going to see Priscilla and Aquila open up their home to others like Paul here in Corinth. They open up their home to him. The churches that met in their, we find out later, churches met in their home both in Ephesus and in Rome. So these are likely people of means. They own this business. Um, they're able to use the resources that they have, sizable home, sizable business, for the benefit of others, but for the benefit of the kingdom of God. They saw hospitality as a means of mission. And that's important for us. That's the way we've structured our church is through missional communities. And those don't meet in this building. They meet in our homes. They meet in different neighborhoods. Why? Because we want to be where people are. We want to connect in with that. Now, there's challenges for us, right? Because we don't see hospitality often as mission. Most of the time we think of hospitality, you think of having your friends over. That's not really a biblical definition of hospitality. That's just being a friend, Right? That's just like family. Hospitality was always kind of stranger-oriented. 
It was welcoming the stranger in. It was welcoming um, not like your mates. What are the challenges for us then? And, and these are challenges that we have to ask because if, if you're around here long enough, you know we don't run a lot of programs. We don't run a lot of programs to try to bring people in to hear the good news. We do that some, sure. But we really want to push that down into street level, out into our lives um, uh, as we do that. But we have challenges in our, in our context, right? Some of us are overcommitted to all kinds of different things. We don't have any margin left in our life. That's part of the reason why we don't run a million different programs here, so that we have margin in our life, so that you're not in this building four or five nights a week, that you can actually have nights free to uh, engage with your neighbors, that you can have people over for dinner, that you can serve in your community. And so we have to think through our lives, think through our schedules. Everything that you say yes to means you have to say no to something else. So how are we organizing our lives to be able to say yes to what God wants us to say yes to? Sometimes we have the challenge of intentional isolation, right? We want to isolate ourselves. We kind of put these buffers around our lives to kind of keep people at arm's length. Sometimes it's our comfort addiction. But hospitality will put you in, in uncomfortable situations at times, Right? We want our house just the way that we want it. We don't want it messed up. We Listen, I just want you know, Netflix tonight. And there's a place and time for, for all those sorts of things. But we can get addicted to kind of our creature comforts to where the Lord never uh, is allowed to break, in, break into those things. And ultimately, those things are rooted in selfishness and pride. Paul and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila understood the grace of Jesus that resulted in generosity with their resources, their home, their time, their money. All of these things were just a part of the way they lived their lives. So we can learn a lot from them. They are, they're this, a shining example in the New Testament of this kind of power couple, if you will, right? That had great influence on the early church. And they had great influence um, because they were so open with their lives. They're willing to move. They're able to use their resources, their homes. They welcome people in. They were able to use the knowledge and wisdom that God had given them to teach other people, to make disciples. And so this is the couple that Paul joins in with. We then move in to see a little bit of Paul's kind of work ethic, right? Paul models working hard. Paul's preaching. Um, he's working as a tent maker. He's writing letters to follow up with churches. Um, that, he's, that he's been with, right? He's, he's working hard. Now, it helps that he's single. He'll actually say that that's a gift um, that God has given him, which is important because there are, whatever season of life God has you in, um, marriage is a gift. Kids are a gift. Singleness is a gift, right? It's a gift because ask any married person, um, like all of our elders at the minute um, and, and kind of key leaders are all like just had babies or having babies or getting ready to have babies. Um, like I'm the only one and I'm done with that season of my life. I love the three gifts that God has given me. They're, that's enough. <laughs> spread, the, <laughs> spread, the, spread the generosity around. But it's, it's hard, right? You have commitments. You just can't you have to be at home. You have to raise your kids. You have to, and that's, that's great. And it's a calling. That's part of mission as well. Um, but if you're single right now, it's because God has gifted you with singleness. And so the question is, how can I use my time as a single person then in a way that I'm not going to be able to use my time? Should God gift me with marriage? And certainly not once God gifts me with not being able to sleep. I mean, having kids. And so God gives us different seasons of life. At this moment in time, Paul's working really hard. He's single. After Silas and Timothy arrive, they're going to arrive, we see in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, there's a shift that happens. Paul then becomes occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Um, Silas and Timothy bring with them um, funds, from other supporting churches. And it allows Paul to transition into full-time ministry. Um, this is important for us. We should be working hard unto the Lord, whether that's in full-time ministry or in our vocations or whatever, whatever it is, right? 
Paul will write to the Romans. He says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And so whatever that looks like, whether we're married, whether we have kids, whether we're single, whether, whatever it is, we all should be not slothful in zeal. We should be diligent, not lack diligence in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. And so we have to figure out in our lives, what does this look like? We need rhythms of, of, of working hard. We need rhythms of rest and Sabbath. Paul had those as well. So that we're able to run the race and finish well. That we're able to have a long outlook, a long, uh, play the long game, right? We don't want to just like have all this kind of zeal and then burn out. God gives us these rhythms to work hard, to rest, rhythms of Sabbath. And so we need both. We need tent-making ministers. That's all the Christians who aren't in full-time ministry. And we need full-time ministers, and there are, times, <clears throat> dependent, there are times where I've done both. There are times where I've just worked, uh, you know, a non-ministerial job. There are times where I've worked part-time and in the early days trying to start village, I did this part-time and worked part-time. Um, whatever it is that God has given us uh, during that time. But here's the important thing. Your job, whatever it is, your vocation, gives you the opportunity and the means by which to love your neighbors to display Christ honoring integrity and to speak the good news and make the gospel known around the world using whatever means the Lord has given you. Let me say it again. Your job, your vocation gives you the opportunity and the means by which to love your neighbors, to display Christ honoring integrity and to speak the good news and make the gospel known around the world using whatever means the Lord has given you. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how will I leverage my vocation for the good of the nations? How will I do that? Because there was Christians in Philippi who were leveraging their vocation and then sending money down to Paul in Corinth so that he could not do tent making full-time and he could focus on ministry full-time. What a great example. Village is here today because of other churches, because of other Christians in different parts of the world that have sent money here, still continue to do, so that it frees some of us up to be able to do this full time. And hopefully as we grow, that becomes less and less and we're able to support ourselves. And then we then have the opportunity to do that. So how will you leverage your vocation for the good of the nations? Your job is no less important in the eyes of God than my job. Because I stand up here most Sundays and, and teach the Bible, my job's not more important than your job. It's just different than your job. So how will you leverage your life? How will you leverage your vocation? How will you leverage your singleness? How will you leverage your family? How will you leverage what God has given you in the season of life that you're in? The second stage that we see here then is this full-time ministry. Paul moves into focusing on um, making disciples, teaching the Bible, engaging with the city. And so we see he's supported. Paul becomes occupied by, by the word. He's devoted. He's engrossed in that. They bring financial support so that Paul can fo focus on full-time ministry. Um, we see this from the churches in Macedonia. Uh, one of those is the church in Philippi. And they sent money down. This is what Paul says to, to that church in, in Philippians 4. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent uh, me help for my needs once and again. In, in then writing back to the Corinthians about his time here, he says this. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. He's like, I didn't burden you for the needs that I had. Um, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So they brought funds with them. They bring funds down and allow Paul to move into full-time ministry. They also probably brought an encouraging report of how things were going back then. You see, the whole body of Christ is vital fulfilling the mission of the church that God gave us. He, God gave us all the same mission. We are all commissioned to go and make disciples. 
That's not just for like the full-time ministry people. That's all of our calling. It takes the whole body of Christ in fulfilling the mission of the church that Jesus has given us. And so we serve sacrificially. We give sacrificially. And I just want to take a moment to say thank you for those of you that do that. Um, I can't tell you just how encouraging that is, Um, even like during the week, to see some of you come in here and just get stuck in, mopping floors and vacuuming and just doing all all the cleaning. I mean, that's like, no one sees that. It's the most kind of tedious kind of job. Um, It encourages me so much though, that people will give their time. They'll take a few hours out of the week to do that. And most importantly, the Lord sees that. The Lord knows that. Um, Or or serving with our kids or helping serve coffee or or all the myriad of ways that um, a lot of you guys get stuck in. Um, And we need more of that. Um, and the ways that you guys give sacrificially, that's part of our covenant membership is that we're, we will all covenant to do our part in this, um, that we will all be a part of, of giving to the work of the Lord. Um, and, and so some of that is kind of so that what can happen here, so that some of us that are called can set aside time to be able to study, that can be able to counsel, that can be able to do all the things that hopefully benefit the entire body and build us up so that more and more people are hearing the gospel and the good news And we plant other churches that we're getting ready to do in the autumn um, in South Belfast. This is, um, the more we understand the grace of Jesus, the more generous we really become. This is what Paul writes to this church. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. Why? So that you by his poverty might become rich. God gave everything away to us, sacrificed everything in his life. Why? So that you and I might be spiritually rich. That's the grace of God to us. And the more we understand God's grace, the more generous we become. We see Paul then run into opposition. He goes to the synagogue. Eventually he's opposed. Um, They drag him in front of this kind of uh, court and they're like, what are you talking about? This is like your own dispute. Get out of here. I'm not interested. They beat this other guy, Sosthenes, poor fella. Um, just as an example, probably trying to like uh, deter anybody else. And he moves on. He shakes out his clothes. He says, listen, this isn't my responsibility. Your blood is no longer on my hands. But what we do see is fruitfulness even in the middle of his opposition. <laughs> What's, I think God has a sense of humor sometimes, right? Uh, he leaves the synagogue, and now where is the church going to meet? Next door, (laughs) like literally right next to the synagogue. Why? Because there's this uh, uh, Tinius Justice opens his home because he's converted to Jesus. He understands as a Jew, Jesus is the Messiah. And he's like, you can meet at my house. Oh, great. Where do you meet? Right next door. Uh, I I can't imagine that that made the the rulers in the synagogue too too happy. Well, the next ruler of the synagogue, because the first ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, actually converts to Christianity too. Um, and so these guys must have had that Berean spirit that John looked at two weeks ago. Looking at the scriptures, they hear Paul teaching. He's teaching from the scriptures. They go to the scriptures. Is this what it actually says? And through the power of the Holy Spirit opening their eyes, believe what Jesus said, that all the Old Testament testifies to me. This is, this is incredible. It's, it's encouraging to us because the gospel can transform anyone. These are people that should have been the leaders of the opposition, the leaders of the synagogue. And Jesus converts them. And he brings them into the family. Amazing. Stage three then, we really start to see this weakness and fear that we opened up with. Despite this fruit, Paul's confidence seems to be under pressure. His faith at least his confidence in, in maybe his calling seems to be under pressure. He acknowledges his weakness and his condition is evident by the Lord's word of encouragement to him. The Lord has to come in a vision and actually address Paul. Why does he do that? Because he loves him. He loves Paul. He comes, he assures him. We're not sure why he's, he's, he's discouraged or why he's so fearful. Maybe he was just too tired to enjoy even the blessings that he was there. Maybe Paul's getting close to burnout. You wouldn't blame the guy from what we've seen so far. When we overwork or we're overextended, we all struggle for joy. 
we've, um, I've shared my own struggle with that at times. Um, during the winter time, there's kind of, uh, before I took, I took a sabbatical almost two years ago, saw a counselor for part of that. And he's like, listen, some of this is probably just cumulative effect of 20 plus years in ministry. Like, you just need to take an extended break from some of that. Um, I just came back from two weeks of holiday, which was great. I got the flu while I was on holiday, right? And uh, there's this, there's a, it wasn't, didn't last long, but there's a short kind of like, oh, is this going to be a woe is me, you know, my holiday and I have the flu and I'm in bed and fever and all that. And um, I just felt this kind of general rebuke maybe that the Lord gave Paul as well. Like, I just started to take stock over the last six years particularly of all that the Lord has done. Um, and you just start to kind of count your blessings. You just start to actually take inventory of the Lord's working within that. And it's incredible what God has done here in the, in the last four years, the last six years. Um, I don't know that any of us would have thought sitting in that living room with a handful of us and people showing up hungover and all sorts of stuff um, that the Lord would do what he's done during this time. And so God comes and he, he, gives, he gives him this gentle rebuke. He says, don't be afraid. That's so encouraging to me, right? Because here's Paul, the, the apostle. But Paul wasn't immune to fear. He's not, he's, he's, he's not immune to, to fear um, setting in. And we see this as a common theme with a lot of messengers in the Bible who have to be remembered, who have to be reminded, fear not. Don't be afraid. Which begs a question for us. What are you fearful of that might hinder your walk or your witness? What is it that, that, that when fear kind of settles in, what is it, what's the source of that fear for you? Because he's going to say, don't be silent. What makes you want to be silent for the Lord? What is it? What, 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 what's the source of that fear? It's important for us to think that through and to ask. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 56, he says, when I am afraid, okay, so what do we do when we're afraid? What do we do in these moments? When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And this is what Paul eventually comes around to, right? He says, to die is actually gain. Like, what could you do to Paul? God loves us. We can trust him. And ultimately, we have no reason to fear. And we understand Paul's fearfulness. If I was getting ready to be stoned, I'd probably have some fear in me. <laughs> I'd be scared. And yet, the psalmist says, what ultimately can flesh do to me? What can, what can man do to me? And so God gives him this mandate. Don't be silent, Paul. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Go on speaking. It's hard to imagine Paul being tempted to be silent, isn't it? We can kind of paint this picture that's maybe not a really realistic picture of, of what we see in the scripture. But why keep speaking, Paul? Was it because Paul was so good at it? No. He says, keep speaking. Why? Because I am with you. I am with you. <laughs> I'm with you. Cast your insufficiency on the Lord's total sufficiency and find that weakness is actually the secret strength of God's ambassadors. It's, it's weakness. It's understanding our weakness and casting that, our insufficiency on the, on the Lord and allowing him to strengthen us. And so God gives him these promises. These are these promises to Paul. One, he says, I'm with you, which is what Jesus said already in the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples. I'll be with you. You don't, you're not, you don't have to do this on your own. I'm with you. Second, no one is going to harm you or attack you. God gave Paul a specific promise for protection for a certain window of time. And then third, the other promise that he gives him is God's sovereignty and salvation. 
So what does he say? He says, I have many in this city who are my people. Don't, don't be silent. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. I have many in this city who are my people. They just didn't know it yet. Paul already had, God already had a plan. He already, he already knew who was gonna come to, to faith in Jesus. And, and how was he gonna do that? He wasn't gonna send an angel. He wasn't gonna show up like he did with Paul. Paul was gonna go and preach the word and they were gonna hear and the spirit was gonna move and God was drawing people to himself. And so Paul could have confidence don't be afraid. Don't be silent. I'm going to protect you. And I have many more people still in the city that are mine. He could have confidence going out. And in some ways, we have some of these promises to us as well. These are the promises to us. God says, I am with you. Right? His promise is that I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always, even in the end of the age. We have the promise that God is drawing people to himself. And we might not have the specific promise that Paul had for protection, for a specific window of time, but what we do have is the promise that God is working all things together for, for our good. Look at this scripture that we see in Romans 8. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And, and God's message to Paul is this. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. I'm with you. I'm going to work all things together for your good. And, and, and part of why I'm doing that is because I have people who I am calling to be glorified. I'm going to justify them. And so as Paul is rejuvenated in these promises, may we be rejuvenated in that as well. I can be honest with you. Like there are times in ministry where I felt like, oh man, maybe I should do something different. And it's these, it's these promises that God has given us. I don't have the pressure of having to produce results in ministry. I just have to be faithful. That's all I'm called to do. That's all we're all called to do. Just be faithful. And God will take care of the fruitfulness. And so this is what happens with Paul. And he enters into this kind of long-term discipleship season. Then a year and a half, then he stays. And he's strengthening them in the word. He's teaching and those people, those many people that God had that were a part of his, were becoming a part of the church. This is incredible. It's this snapshot that we have of ministry, of kind of professional ministers and just lay people ministering together on the same mission, worshiping the same Jesus, relying on the same promises. And then Paul returns to Antioch. Paul goes to Ephesus for a short time, engaging in the synagogue there. They ask him to stay longer, and he says, it's not the right time yet. If it's the Lord's will, I'll come back. We'll see he does. And then he returns to uh, the church in Jerusalem. It says he goes up to the church and then back down to the church in Antioch. Um, we see him shave his head as he's finishing his vow. No doubt he went to the church in Jerusalem there. He reports what's happening. He's, he's encouraging them. And then he returns to Antioch. This is important because Paul's not some isolated missionary. He ministered. He goes out. He plants churches. All of these things in association with a local church that sent him. Paul's accountable to these people. He's coming back. He's reporting what's happening. And so I hope we're encouraged this morning on our fourth birthday, anniversary, whatever. I hope we're encouraged again to pour out our lives like Paul did like Priscilla and Aquila did, like Silas and Timothy and Luke who's recording these things, for Jesus and his gospel because it's worth it. And if we're fearful and if we're tired, we can take these promises that God has given us. We hold and we cling fast to these things that he is with us. That he's not leaving us. He's not forsaking us. That his sovereign plan is moving forward and that he's inviting us into that. And so let's encourage one another to do that. Um, encourage each other in our missional communities. We'll come together tonight. We'll pray together for some of these things and encourage that. Thank you to, to those of you that do that. Um, 
uh, I got a note while I was away, and my wife took a picture of it and then sent it to me, um, just from a family. And everyone in that family wrote a little something. Just say, hey, we just want to encourage you, and um, you know, village is, God's using village in our lives and all sorts of things. So thank you for those of you that do that. Let me encourage us to do, we're, I mean, that's a command from the Bible, that we're to encourage one another, that we're to spur one another on to good works. And so let's support one another in this mission together. Let's be generous. Let's be hospitable. Let's, let's pour out our, our lives and our homes. Let's not be fearful and silent. Let's be courageous for Jesus. And if you're struggling in that, if you're like, man, I don't know, I'm a bit tired, <laughs> I'm a bit weary, I'm a bit fearful, it's okay to admit that. The Apostle Paul admits that. And the Lord comes and he strengthens him in that. We rest in Jesus because he's accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. So all the heavy lifting's already been done. The mission is already successful. We already know how it ends. We just get to be faithful and play our part in that. And we work from the grace and the strength that he supplies in the midst of our weakness. In the midst of our weakness. I don't, you know, when we set out four years ago, six years ago, to just feel like God was calling us to plant village, I had no idea how it would kind of go or end. I certainly didn't have where we are now in mind. and probably, I just didn't know. I just knew what the next thing was or the next couple things. And you just trust the rest of the Lord. And it certainly seems this is Paul's modus operandi as well. I'm going to go to the next city and we'll see what happens. And the Lord says, it's okay. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Keep going. Keep speaking. I'm going to accomplish my purposes. We have the great privilege to be a part of that. That God would use us in our weakness, in our fearfulness, in our trembling. And so let's stay humble, church. But let's be bold and let's encourage one another. Um, and let's see what God will do in the next four years, in the next 16 years. I love that we're in the middle of a baby boom because I get to go, I wonder what it'll look like in, you know, 25 years or whatever when I'm done, if, that, if the Lord gives me that, you know, whenever I'm not going to be the pastor of Village anymore. Um, and these little babies are all in their 20s. <laughs> like they're adults. They're, they'll be the age that some of you are now. What will the Lord do in their lifetime? I don't know, um, but I can't wait to see what he does if we'll, be, if we'll just be faithful. And so let's uh, commit to that uh, together. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we get ready to come to the table, we are reminded of, of the means by which uh, we are able to accomplish these things. We're able to accomplish what you've asked us to accomplish because you have accomplished um, all of that on the cross. You have defeated uh, death. You have defeated sin. We are no longer slaves to those things. We are free um, because of the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross. And so, Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. And um, Father, it's our prayer that it doesn't just stop there, that we just don't see ourselves as, as just kind of saved because of that, and then we just kind of do whatever we want until you return, um, but that we would actually be motivated by the gospel um, to be obedient to your calling in our lives, regardless of what our vocation is, regardless of what our marital status is or our child status or, Father, wherever you have us in this, in this moment, in this season in life, that we would be faithful. Father, we believe your promises that you are with us, that we don't need to be afraid, that you're working all things together um, for our good, that you already are accomplishing your sovereign will. Um, Father, that's such great news. That takes all the pressure off of us. Um, and so, Father, as we leave this place and go into missional communities, as we go back into areas of vocation, as we go back into our homes uh, to raise kids and all of these different things, Father, may we carry the, the good news of Jesus with us. May we be encouraged by these promises this morning. May we have and be community to one another like, uh, like uh, Priscilla and Aquila were. Um, and Father, as we do that, um, would you do more? Would you save more people? 
Would you rescue more people? Would you let us plant more churches? Would you use us to encourage and strengthen um, other churches either here or, or abroad? Father, would you use us as individuals, as a community, as you see fit? May we say yes. Even this morning, amen. Let's stand together. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of, of Jesus, you're welcome to the table this morning. As we take bread, we rip bread, we dip it in wine, we're reminded, um, have the words spoken over us, Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you, um, the means and the motivation by which we come to here today and as we go out um, together today, uh, the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And we get to participate um, in these very tangible ways even this morning. Um, so let's stand, let's sing. Uh, there's a gluten-free option on this side um, as well if, if you need that as well. Let's stand together.